This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome, movie lovers, back for another Anatomy of Movie where we dissect Coco today. That's right. It was released just in time for Thanksgiving from Disney and Pixar with a budget about 175 million to 200 it's a movie coming in at uh, about an hour and 50 minutes directed by lee unkrich and adrian molina stay tuned as we dissect welcome to popcorn talk featuring movie discussion news and interviews popcorn talk we talk movies and now here's popcorn talks anatomy of a movie welcome ladies and gentlemen we are your hosts. We got Dimitri Panos. Hey, movie fans. Hey, Phil. And Marissa. Welcome. Welcome. We got Marissa Serafini. Hello, everyone. And I'm Phil Svitek. Back for another Anatomy of a Movie. And as we always do, a couple of quick things. A, understand that this is completely spoiler-filled. So if you haven't seen the movie, you have been warned. Uh, secondly, you can always follow along. Uh, we will post our rundown in the description box, so that way you can get our various notes and so forth. And thirdly, I, I might add that this is a new format we're trying out. Um, hopefully you guys enjoy. We'll have a lot more images, a lot more clips and things like that. We're spicing it up, so please, in the comments section, let us know what you guys think. Hopefully you guys enjoy. But as we always do, overall impressions of this movie. Ladies first, Marissa. I really loved this film. As anyone knows and has listened to Anatomy of a Movie for the past few years, knows I'm a humongous Disney and Pixar fan, so I was already really excited going into this. It was gorgeous. I loved it. Yeah, I love any family storylines. There was a lot of good, strong characters, and l- literally going into the different worlds, it was visually stunning, and it was it's just a fun adventure, and especially focused on a minority and, and a kid who had like this passion and dream, but he was so determined to do it. Um, I really enjoyed it, and I think it's something relatable for families, for kids, and it's very inspiring at the end. When I walked out of theater, I was smiling from ear to ear, and I loved it. Very good. Dimitri? Yeah, well, I mean, this Coco uh, was uh, something that ended up being uh, very close and personal for me. In fact, I'm going to dedicate my, I'm going to dedicate the show to Brenda. Uh, there was a there was a lot of her in this movie. For me, Coco is just a vibrant visual narrative with a heartfelt felt poignancy that you expect from Pixar, and they again prove that story theme and character building is as important as environment building. I felt um, not that the not that the depiction of Dios de los Muertos isn't eye poppingly beautiful because. It is. I mean, let's just face it. Um, Latin pride and heritage really burst out in color and emotion. Uh, And directors Lee Unkrich and Andrea Molina Molina seamlessly blended concept and culture. Uh, Exposition is expertly and efficiently uh, relayed so as audiences can easily understand the setup the risks, the stakes, and the goals of this movie, like any good Pixar movie does, right? Not since Inside Out has the use of lighting, color, opacity, translucency been used to tell story with such effect. The Mexican lore of Dios de los Muertos is brought to such a life. It makes one want to believe in the tradition 
the comfort and the togetherness. The faithfulness to the culture is all up on the silver screen. Uh, and the creators of Coco are masterful. They're like mariachis plucking at the heartstrings of the audience. You can't help but get emotional when a minor character fades away because he's no longer m remembered, so to speak. It's just plain sad. And as the dangers of the ethereal world are demonstrated, you'll be warmly reminded of your loved ones, living or beyond. Coco does the with culture. They do they handle it with culture and with class. Coco is a film uh, that you will remember with heart, and you will not forget. Um, and Brenda, of course, for those who don't know. Um, do you want to give a little, little context? Yeah, I mean, I've never really brought it up, but uh, Brenda, Brenda's my wife. Uh, she's Mexican. Uh, big family tradition. She passed away uh, after a long fight with cancer uh, about uh, just a little over a year ago. Yeah. Um, I got very emotional seeing this because I just saw a lot of her in this. In the land of the living with dealing with, with, dealing with a grandmother, a great-grandmother, and in the land of the dead. It was just so wonderful how even the family there was all together looking out for one another. This is one of the things that I took from my wife. Obviously very well stated, um, and I'm sure a lot of people universally had that same emotion. And that's, yeah. that's, the, that's the true beauty of a movie like this, um, is that it expands, um, you know, everyone can have that general sensibility. What I loved about this movie at first, um, I, I, I really didn't have any context going into it overall truthfully um and as it sort of played out it it seemed fine um it really did uh but it seemed like you know it gave us these various little bits that were obviously very predictable but they kind of made light of them and then as it lay went on uh it really layered itself and you just had to really see the story unfold in the way that it did and just kind of trust that it was going to do right by you, and, and, and it did. Um, one of the things I, I, I was very curious on, I was like, why is this movie named Coco? You know, because for a long time, yes, I understand that it's the grandmother, but, like, what the hell she got to do with the story up until the point that she does? Right. And so uh, I think, you know, that's something we'll certainly talk about. I thought it was one of the best movies of the year, um, not just animation-wise, but just in general. I hope to see more movies like this from all cultures. So now we're, we, we will talk uh, about story and the development of this story and the development of this movie, which, believe it or not, came um, from... Back in 2010, uh, shortly after Toy Story 3 was in the can, getting ready for release. And what was going to be for Lee's uh, next project? But they just thought, hey, Unrank and Pixar opened up production to allow Mexican-American creative voices a seat at the table. And the cartoonist Laszlo Alcaraz, playwright Octavio Solis, as well Mexican heritage groups, they're all part of this that this ever-evolving um, movie, which lends to what we talk about, the authenticity. So we're 2000, going into 2018. So this is a seven, at least a seven-plus-year production. For the director, Leon Critch, he said it, the Day of the Dead holiday really always fascinated him. He quotes, I w It wasn't until I started to learn about the tradition and what it truly was all about and its history that I started to really see the potential of telling a story that it could be very adventurous and visually dazzling, full of music and color, but could also have real emotional resonance. So in taking up, too, from what you were saying... 
Uncrich, you know, he wanted to follow Toy Story 3 up with something original. And he did, as you were saying, became very fascinated with Dios de los Muertos. And during his research, he realized that it's not actually about death. It's about life. And that's what fascinating that's what fascinated him so much and the beauty of the holiday began to emerge and based on that pitch alone with he had no story no characters nothing right but he brought it to Lasseter and Lasseter gave Uncrich the go ahead to move forward with his untitled Dia de los Muertos movie. So while this pitch was greenlit, the producers, Jason Katz and director Lee Uncrich, and multiple creative employees of Disney, they took multiple research trips down to Mexico and all the different cities. Hola, Miguel. Hola. At Pixar, research is crucial to our storytelling. And with Coco, we got to visit the beautiful country of Mexico. This movie, you want it to all be rooted in actual places and actual people. So it was really important to us to see kind of the breadth of Mexico and how many different cultures and traditions there are. We visited big cities and little towns, multi-generational family businesses of shoemakers. For art, for story, and characters, it was just so informative. All right, guys, one of the things we have to talk about is Pixar is so amazing at setting up these worlds and also the rules of this world. And so we could talk about Inside Out and we can compare it to that. We could talk, I mean, just any number of movies, but let's let's talk about this one specifically because you got the land of the dead. We have to establish the rules of remembrance and so forth. And, uh, you know, uh, Dimitri, I know one of the things you want to talk about is it's not just setting up for adults. It has to work for kids. And so it has to be... I don't want to say dumbed down. I don't think kids are dumb, but they have to simplify. Simplify. And they do it in a, both a narrative and a visual narrative way, using both color for the kids, and then they explain it for the adults, and the kids can understand, too, that he steals the guitar, and the pathway that they built with the pedals brings him as a live person to the land of the dead. And then you have two things that they're setting up. He's not supposed to be there, so they do what I affectionately called the back to the future kind of like marty mcfly needs to get back to his time or he's gonna fade away miguel needs to get back to his time or he's gonna fade away and become trapped in in the land of the dead then you have this whole thing about the remembrance and if you remember it in inside out they use the fuzziness around yes. um joy the translucent yeah they used that again. It was like they built on that technology and they used it to great effect here mm-hmm. uh, on the characters. And then it was about remembrance, which is what Dios de los Muertes is all about. It's about remembrance, but it's about the happy times. But if you have no one who remembers you anymore, what happens to that, that ethereal soul? Because we all need to be remembered. And they showed it with great effect with that one character. And it was such a poignant, touching moment. That we don't even we don't even know this character. And you're still but you understand and this is this is what could possibly happen to Hector. And you go, Oh, this is what Hector is fighting for. I mean, it, it just, it emotionally ties you more into Hector. And at that moment he becomes more than just the slick. Con man, you understand now 
what he's reaching to try, why it's so important for him yeah. to make that path. It's beautiful. Uh, what about for you, Marissa? How, um, how would you compare it to other Pixar movies or just you know, this one in general. I love the establishment of each of the characters. I think the opening sequence did a really good job of explaining the whole family storyline, the family business, and who exactly is who. Like this, it started with the woman and the man and passed on to the children. It was very laid out, very concisely for the adults and the children. So two minutes in, I already understood which each character was. And I think that was very well executed visually and just storytelling-wise to set up a good narrative for us to watch throughout the entire film. Um, when we saw the actual family, it felt like a family. I think the dy- they definitely got the dynamics of a family and how they talk and inter- interact with each other, especially when they were living and also when we go to the land of the dead <laughs> and all the dead relatives, too. They still acted very much like a family with the trend brothers, you know, picking on each other. Um, like, the dynamic w- was very set in stone, and it was very believable and realistic, and I think that was a great job by Disney and Pixar. They always do a good job of setting really good established characters. Even if we see them for one or two minutes, and they only have a few lines, you still understand their personalities and who they were or are. Right. What I, pre- I mean, it's, it's a very simple um, de- uh, device, if you will, you know, he's he's a new character into a completely new world, and that's what we essentially are. And as far as the information that he has, you know, we're gaining it along with him. And so, as far as I, you know, what I loved about the exposition is very layered, and we get it when when we absolutely need it. Um, and so, it's simple in that way. So, uh, and it's very believable for that character. The rest of the, you know, as as he made mention, the family knows the history, right? But Miguel, he's new to this, so he's misinformed in some areas, just like we are. And then as it develops, it's, uh, I want to say it's like an onion, but we're peeling away layers or we're building on top of it, whatever sort of metaphor you want to take. Absolutely. In many movies, it's hard to do. Like, how do you explain this to a kid? How do you, it's like trying to explain Blade Runner or Blade Runner 2049 to a 12-year-old, right? But Pixar is able to take complexity and through clever exposition and visuals, they do it. The other great thing is, you can p- take the story out of here and plug it into another type of genre film, and the story still works. Yeah. Like, it really is. We talk about that a lot, too. Well, that, they, they say the greatest stories. teachers in general, um, and it's not just storytellers, teachers in general are able to take a complex subject and, and simplify it for the student, and I think that's what Pixar does amazing. Let's talk about another topic sort of tied into it, the idea of stereotypes. Right, because you know you could take all of these characters, um, and something that you know we've had to talk about with other movies, but where they become just stereotypes of a thing rather than honoring the culture. And uh, so I want to get uh, Marissa. Why, why don't you kind of kick it off in that sense, like as far as the traditions versus stereotypes and how that was dealt with and why it felt authentic. I, I think they definitely got the the Latin culture down correctly because, especially you know, in the development and creating the characters and just the culture in and of itself, they wanted to be true to life and as authentic as they can be. And I think they did a great job of establishing uh, the the roles of which the parents do, and and the even the grandparents do in any family. And it doesn't just have to be the Latin community, but in any family, you understand like the the, the older. You know, we had Grandma Coco and uh, Mama Coco, really. And, uh, like, her personality, Mama Melda and her personality. Um, and it's just not... 
when you have matriarchal characters, they you want to assume they're going to be like stern, but also underneath it, they're they're also layered, and there's emotion, and there's a soft side too. It's not just the the evil stepmother, or you know the the when you think of one character, you automatically attribute it to these personality traits, right? And it wasn't like that, especially even with Miguel, our main protagonist. He was a kid, but he was full of hope, and that's what I liked in in the qualities of just children. They they have a certain level of naivety that it's endearing, but it's not it's not a hindrance to their intelligence level. It's just something that they have that maybe adults uh, lack or right. once had in their right. young life and faded away. Um, so like his his drive and his personality and the the strength that he had of you know really wanting he he loved his family and the family loved him even though they clashed in certain things i think they did a great job of not establishing like oh because it's the parents it's the, the parents who are against the children or the children against the parents it, it was very layered and complex like a real family like because as a family you're not always going to agree on everything but you still love each other at the end of the day yeah i mean i can speak to like you know the great grandmother and and using Brenda as an example, it was just it was the way in which they treated family that really rang true. Again, I got to witness this like firsthand, and her love for her great grandmother was whenever she saw her, she always put her hands in her. She's like besos, besos, like kisses, kisses, kisses for her grandmother. Not unlike what we're seeing here. There really wasn't any stereotype, and thank God that 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 like Ulrich. Uh, like just understood because the original story changed. I mean, this wasn't necessarily going to be a full Mexican uh, heritage type of a story. Um, the original story was about an American boy who had a Mexican mother uh, and an American father. And it was a story about the father taking him down to Mexico to meet the Mexican side of the family. And there's where he was exposed to De Los Delos Muertos. And that was the story for like a wicked long time. And suddenly they realized, you know, we got something that's really, really wrong with this. Um, because ultimately a story about a kid dealing with his grief and learning to say goodbye to the memory of his mom. That's, he goes, we're telling a story that was thematically completely antithetical to what Day of the Dead or De Los, De Los Muertos was about. And that's where there was a, that paradigm shift. It's like, we can only do this if we're going to give and pay respect to that culture. And that, to me, sometimes storytellers and or studios don't get that. Like, you know, they might have been, they were originally sold. Lasseter was sold on the that original pitch. But the light went off in their head saying, we could make a really bad mistake here. Yeah. Um, so I'm very glad that they caught that. One of the things that really took me with this movie that we have to talk about is Ernesto de la Cruz. The way in which they treated him, uh, obviously he ends up being the villain. But nonetheless, um, there's still love given to that character in the way that he was portrayed. And though you may not agree with you know, eventually with with um, his reasonings, at least it was authentic that too, right? So when we talked about with stereotypes, this too was authentic to him, although be it a bad guy, um, which most movies actually don't get right. They just kind of stereotype the villain. 
Right. What I loved about the establishment of Ernesto, because he was so big in both worlds. He was big in the land of the living and the dead. And what visually going against stereotype, when you think of the good guy, they're usually, for symbolic reasons, are dressed in lighter clothes, in white, or, you know, that shows purity and goodness. Where Ernesto's character is always dressed in white. He has a white sombrero, a white suit. He he has that clean, good, clean-cut look. And but with his whole reveal that he is not as great as you think he is, as big as a knight, iconic, and doesn't have great moral sense of character, you you realize oh he's he's all dressed in white, but he's actually a very dark type of soul. And I thought that was a good, uh, I want to say kind of like a red herring to throw the audience off that you think just visually he's established as a good iconic guy but he's not inside he's not and i thought that was really well done Mm -hmm. yeah and and to expand on your point i mean you believe he's the good guy because he was believed to be a good guy in the land of the living they all looked up to they all looked up to him in the village they 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 raised a monument they they saved his guitar it was like part of a museum exhibit um so you can understand how... And, and furthermore, I mean, the, the main throw-off was the guitar. The guitar. Mm-hmm. You know, and so, <clears throat> you know, part of you wants to believe, like, even though the family dislikes him, uh, the fact that, you know, that, that's that's the person he's going after, uh, mistakenly, you know, he's got to be good. He's got to be of, goodness of in him because he, he identifies with our main character. And it's very believable that a child would look up to that type of a hero. I mean... It, he was a hero to Miguel. I mean, look what he accomplished through his music. He was a movie star. Mm-hmm. He was an action movie star. And he could sing and play the guitar beautifully. For an audience, you're just buying into, I understand why he wants to do what he's doing. Uh, when the reveal comes and we're figuring out, wait a minute, it really comes as a surprise because, again, the storyteller's took time to leave us clues when we should figure things out and realize, wait, he's really not Hector. Hector's actually, oh my God. Like, it just played in so wonderfully so that when it's found out in the land of the dead and we have our conduit in Miguel, Miguel can come back to the land of the living and say, he's a fraud. And the Hector Museum is now being brought up in Hector will be remembered for always. We often talk about it with murder mysteries or uh, thrillers. You, the pacing of things has to be done perfectly for those movies. With a movie like this, the emotion is so integral to everything. And then if you don't get it right, uh, it can make or break the movie. And, um, you know, obviously the ending, just very heartbreaking with Coco. I mean, I've never seen a movie where everyone's crying at the end and yet happy within like 30 seconds, right? Yeah. Um, and I think that's what really solidified it. But um, so let's let's talk about how they are able to to do this. Yeah, I mean, from a story idea, um, it and following this perspective of the Estelas Muertes, you know, they they went to years of development and they evolved to the focus on Miguel as the little Mexican boy, and then it was. He, you know, he goes off to the land of the dead to solve the mystery of why his family hates music so much. So the story, it was working, things were progressing, but they still had a challenge. And Marissa, you actually brought 
this up earlier on, so I'm glad we get to talk about it. Now, because one of their biggest struggles with Miguel is how do we, like, his relationship with his own family. And, how you know, we wanted the family to be antagonistic, but at the same time, we didn't want them to be so bad. We hate them, right? Mm -hmm. So they actually test screened this movie repeatedly. Now, I don't know if it was like regular test screenings or that they did this at Pixar. Um, and throughout the process, the emotional tone of that relationship changed drastically. So, for example, so they'd have a screening, uh, the, the, the test audience, they would leave people thinking the family was terrible, while the next audience said they were too loving for him to run away. So there was a lot of back and forth, and they finally were able to find a sweet spot, Eric says. It's a family that loves Miguel, and they're making some weird choices for him, but you understand that it's coming from the heart with them. They found that right balance so that... Could you imagine if you hated the family? Because then it would be, well, why would he want to go back? And very He's rarely in Disney movies do you actually dislike a family. True. Right. There's usually one person who's the villain, mm -hmm. right? But <clears throat> why would he go back to such a from such a a loving place? But he wants to go back. He wants to play music. Um, his family loves him, so you understand that. And so finding that balance was, um, I just think it was just phenomenal uh, work, work ethic, and just detail to get that done. Now we you talked about the emotional ending, right, with Mama Coco. It. From that, they've always had that. And that was the, you know, that never wavered from screening to screening to screening. It was in the very first screening, the challenge became how to best paint that scene. And a lot of notes we got were, this is a fantastic ending. Now let's t tell us a story. Now let's tell a story where we can get to that place. Yeah. So. And here's the, you know, I, having done this a number of times and we, we talk about it here, the, 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 the shifts can be very subtle. So it's not like, uh, you know, I mean, unless you tell me otherwise, we don't have to add entire scenes to shift the mood. It can be one or two shots here and there, and that's it. Uh, which is, that's that's the subtlety of it all. Um, and what makes it so difficult, because you're like, I thought if we'd added this, they would love the family, but now they hate the family, and blah, 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 blah. And you mentioned editing. Like, this is an editing of emotional beats. Absolutely. And they were so precise. And, and, and getting that, but this is what they do. Even when you look at movies like Toy Story three, or even Cars three, for that matter, right? It's a good Pixar movie. It's not on the Coco level, but even their, even on their not excellent movies, but they're very good movies. Their emotional beats. It's edited in such a way to really affect the audience, young and old. That's what draws. That that's what draws us in. And when a movie like Coco, and even an Inside Out, or, or when you look at Wally, mm -hmm. um, which is all about emotional beat because it barely has any dialogue, or even like Ratatouille. Think about Ratatouille. Their challenge was to make a rat adorable. And, and he's a cook, right? <laughs> they succeed. And uh, the emotional beats that they edit, they, 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 it's like, like I said, they pluck our heartstrings like a like a mariachi. Yeah, I think they do a great job of getting us to that point, like they were yeah. saying, um, because where they physically put their characters, 
that's how they have to get you to a level of an emotion. Whereas in this movie, you saw the moment where Ernesto and Miguel was in the cave-like water pond thing that they got thrown into. Literally the barren place compared to everywhere else of the land of the dead, which still had a lot of life in it, just visually looking with the colors and the palette. And But when you get into a cave-like situation where there's only one or two colors, it it's bland, it's dark, and that helps get you to an emotional state. Comparing it to also Inside Out, when Joy gets down to the literally the depths with all the, the dying memories right. and emotions, that's where the emotional level you get, and that's where the character has the breakdown. All right, guys, we have to talk about our favorite scene or character. For me, it was the spirit animals. And I know that's multiple characters because, it, you know, it's a, it's a couple of uh, things. But um, in particular, the, the dog one, I'll say. Miguel's, right? Dante. Um, yes, Dante. Dante. I thought this was, uh, this was a very clever way of doing it in general. Um, and, you know, uh, Miyazaki's movies kind of have this sort of similar spirit. Um, and, and I just appreciate that. It was just a nice added element into this whole world. And um, obviously, there's there's a ton of emotional scenes and so forth, but this was just another bonus for me, as far as that goes. Pizza. <laughs> the pizza was cool. Awesome. Um, my favorite moment in this entire <clears throat> film was when Miguel was first crossing the Marigold Bridge into mm. the land of the dead. But it was so visually gorgeous, and as an audience member, that was a moment where I mentally was like, wow. This is the film we're watching right now. This is what we're, what we get to see for the next hour. So, like, just getting into another immersive world where, who knows what crazy awesome things we're gonna see. That was when I was like really excited just to watch and be a part of this film because getting in, like I think Disney does a great job of like getting you into an amazing environment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh, I, I don't disagree with you. Um, that scene is so awe-inspiring and eye-poppingly just beautiful in its depiction. Um, Yeah, it's hard not to. And again, I just think that they take their technology, like from a movie like Inside Out, which really built up its environments to where they were beautiful. And and there were the lights we've never seen before. And this is a concept to bring the land of the dead. There's the Los Muertes to life, and how do you do that? It was just stunning. The lights were just stunning. For me... My favorite scene was the visitation to the memorial in the house. Ofrendas. Uh, yeah, the the what the celebration of this was about. Not just going to the graveyard, but the memorials in the house and the pictures. Um, and the end with Mama Coco to see her because everything was resolved for her. And to see all the pictures and the remembrance and how they have that family and the little, I don't know, the little memorials that they have is, is um, well, it's something similar to, to what I have, like the little archways, the candles. the And I, I just, it was so, <laughs> again, it was hard to take myself apart from this movie and just not think about how they nailed it from a heritage standpoint. Because everything that I got regarding that came from Brenda, her family, and her, her family interactions, in the food, which is delicious. Um, so I was very proud 
and I just saw that, and again, the emotion from just very simple things to just a simple scene where Miguel is there. I just loved it. L l just loved it, loved it, loved it. And him with the guitar. There was also a scene when he was plucking at a guitar. And I just had to say, I, I don't play guitar, but I'm willing to bet that the notes that he had his fingers on were 100% correct. They were. And yeah, and it was just from a visual to an audio standpoint, it was just brilliant to see a little boy, just the way he played with such tenderness. Yeah. And how do you do that in animation? Well, Pixar did it. All right. So as we talk about this story, we, of course, have to talk about the actors that voice these characters. Because without them, there's no life, pun intended, to any of these characters. <laughs> Let's start with Miguel because uh, absolute, absolutely phenomenal. If Miguel doesn't work, the story doesn't work. Um, what did you guys think of Anthony Gonzalez, who portrayed him? I really liked the character Miguel. I think they did a great job of establishing that he was such a likable, sweet kid. You you immediately wanted to follow him throughout the entire journey of this film. And it's voiced by an amazing young actor, and who I was not familiar with, with Anthony Gonzalez. But he's already a very established performer. He grew up singing mariachi bands. He's very part of the Latin culture. Mm -hmm. It's nothing new to him. And he actually grew up loving Pixar films because of his parents. So he got this job. He uh, um, like he auditioned for Coco when he was nine, and they finally offered him the part two years later. And he, but he grew up performing, and he was part of La Voz, which is the the Latin version of the Voice in down in um, Mexico. Uh, so he he's a very established singer, musician, and actor. Um, and to finally get a role such as Coco in in this movie and Miguel, he did a great job. All right, and I want something to that uh, to be said about this, at least for the American audiences. Okay, this isn't an animated movie built around again for American audiences star power. Yes, we know Benjamin Bratt. I'm not. I don't want to take you. I don't want to disrespect anybody. But usually, there's a lot of A-list talent that that that's involved with a lot of animated movies, and sometimes. The lesser the quality of the movie, sometimes they get the bigger the talent to try to draw in the adults. But that's not what Pixar's goal is, usually ever, right? Or, or Disney, uh, in fact. D Disney, uh, let alone Pixar, just Disney, uh, the way that they cast their voice is, is suited for the characters. And to your point, this little Anthony Gonzalez, when you look at a picture of this kid and then you look at Miguel, like, it's like... Yeah, okay, I, I get it. Um, you know, uh, I thought that he was fantastic. And you're right, Phil. If Miguel doesn't work, well, a movie don't work. And he had just the right type of innocence and just the right type of beautiful voice where you could believe that, of course, he wanted to be a mariachi. Yeah. So, yeah, he was fantastic. Well, the good news is he really did. Let's, let's talk about Ernesto. I thought uh, just just wonderful overall. He really carried that sense of uh, significance, if you will, perfectly. Uh, and, you know, really, really justified in his actions and so forth. Really believable. Um, I, I thought uh, just overall phenomenal in, in terms of the role. Marissa? I think Benjamin Bratt did a great job carrying a voice 
that could be recognizable and iconic. Um, and it played true to his character and it made it very realistic. I think he has a great job of like layering his character with gravitas and seriousness. When you listen to his voice, you can believe that he is a leader. He's a figure that everyone loved. Uh, he carried his voice well. and But when the character switches to the villain, he played it very very conniving and manipulative but also you kind of felt for him too because it became a humanistic storyline that it came out of jealousy and you also believe that and it carried well in his character yeah I mean uh, Benjamin Bratt's performance um, was very nuanced and I I say that he had a bravado Mm -hmm. as Ernesto right de la Cruz and what was brilliant about it was not only he had the bravado he could play the guitar. He knew the audience in which he played to. But, and here's what makes the switch work. Because when he meets little Miguel, right? He was very kind to him. He's like, son, because you're an amazing talent. You should play with me. And it further draws an audience in to believe that this Ernesto de la Cruz, wow, okay, that's actually sort of cool. Like, I get it. And, and, and you can understand why Miguel is so, like, he's like, oh, my God, it's my it's my hero, and he's actually being nice to me. He's going to give me a shot. I'm going to be able to go back home with permission and be a mariachi. And when he takes that turn, it's a turn for he needs to save his own skin, <laughs> his reputation. You know, don't look over here. And that bravado changes. It, there's still a bravado there. But it's like, they're all wrong, and I'm, I'm going to chase them. Like, that whole choreography of him chasing them on the steps on the stage, again, it was brilliant. But Benjamin Bratt was fantastic. Absolutely. Um, but let's talk about the the real the real dad, if you will, Hector. Um, at first, you know, I mean, perceptions are, are phenomenal in terms of what they could do. Because at first... You know, we, we sort of touched upon it. He's just this sort of, you know, common beggar, if you will. And and eventually, you see the full um, length and breadth of, of who this character really is as a human being. Uh, and just absolutely wonderful, played by... Gael Garcia Bernal. There you go. <laughs> Marissa, what did you think? I loved the character Hector because... They establish him as a con artist, but also with a layer of humor. And there was comedic timings and beats to his character. And then when it gets to him and his friend, Chiracaron, and then his friend convinces him to sing for the first time on the guitar, it it's an eye-opening moment for the audience to like finally realize, oh, this guy is also talented. He had a purpose in life when he used to live. Like, he... It made it relatable, and people started to feel for him. And then later on, when you found out he was now part of the family, he was more integrated, and we got more connected to his character. And I think Guile did a great job of establishing like the funny moments to the serious moments to the heroic moments mm-hmm. at the end. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, and and don't forget too, there was a very there's an important part to Hector's character is that he has forsaken music much like Miguel's family. He doesn't want to play a guitar. And, and and as a con man, when we meet him, when he says that he knows Ernesto de la Cruz, you second guess this. Because 
he even admits that he told this to somebody and he never followed through. So that when he is in proximity to Ernesto, Ernesto goes, Hector, you're like, oh my God, <laughs> he does know him. And then when you learn the whole history of why he has he himself has forsaken music, uh, again, it just brings, you know, he's, he's not a Fagan-ish, you know, from Oliver kind of a con, man. He's just trying to get to the land of the living. He, too, does not want to be forgotten. His goal is noble. And he does what he can. And everybody in town seems to know him. And some of them, they appreciate his oafishness, so to speak. Other people, like, disdain. Like, oh, you tricked me, you know. But the heart of Hector comes through uh, Gale's performance of Hector. And ultimately... It is Hector who ends up being the linchpin. And when we learn that he's the, the true father of it all, it's, it's, it's a very nice moment. And, yes. and he plays it great, you know? Plays mm-hmm. it great. Let's talk about Rene Victor, who plays Abuelita. Abuelita. Um, <laughs> because th- this was, I mean, absolutely integral, uh, you know, absolutely necessary. And you have two very strong women in both the land of the living and the land of the dead. Um, and without either being established in such a way, you know, they wouldn't have supported the mission of Miguel, you know, right. or been in, quote, opposition of him. Right. Uh, because that's what both were. And Abuelita certainly was. And uh, I thought just did uh, a fantastic job, you know, and uh, really, really, you know, one played off of the other in both worlds. Right. Um, and so I thought, I thought, fantastic job. Yeah, I thought she was a very strong character and a strong voice, too, because mm. Abuelita, I mean, compared to, in contrast to Mama Coco, who just sits there and is soft and literally says nothing because of her old age. But then we got Abuelita, who's younger, but she's older, full of wisdom, but also very stern and she explains that and she shows it she hits people with her shoes it's like she's a character that you don't want to mess with so when she's so adamant against music you want to actually be like okay yes i'm sorry for liking music you know it's like you don't want to mess with her she is a character not to be trifled with and i think she was a great strong character and then you saw her soften up especially at the end with the whole reveal of the music and and the father and she finally got to that point of forgiveness and allowing music back into the family she started off stern and now i don't want to say cold-hearted but she did warm up at the end where she was still that sweet grand parent figure yeah again i go back to when we were talking about how how do we find this balance like how do we make them not hateable right and renee victor does that to a plum with abuelita and not only is it just the voice but they match the voice with her actions and you talk about the shoe right so we have there were two great scenes with the shoe where she takes the the sandal off and slings it like a gun twirls it like a gunslinger hits the person puts it back on and <laughs> she's walking uh takes it off to hit somebody again or it could have been dante and she throws the shoe and then she keeps on walking. She goes, now go get my shoe. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great scene. It doesn't work with the wrong voice talent behind it, right? Mm-hmm. She was the, uh, she's the abuelita of the family. Everything did come from heart. Whether it's a little misguided, 
and wrong. Um, well, uh, to me, she's just she's, trying to protect yes. Mama Coco, ultimately. And the family. Yeah. It, like, the family is important. Yeah. So yeah. I think I think it's all in service to that. Yeah. And speaking of uh, Mama's the big mama, um, Mama Imelda. What a voice, just overall. Like, oh, my God. I mean, they were Love holding that her. for a long time. And yeah. then when we talked about Ernesto de la Cruz and the dance, I mean, this is the dance doesn't work without Mama Imelda. Yeah. Yeah. No, I loved Mama Imelda because, I mean, we just had Abuelita in the land of the living, but now we have Mama Imelda, who's also that stern voice and admin to voice against music in the land of the dead. But I loved her character, how later on we figure out that she was also part of music. It was very well in, integrated into her life, and she was part of it. And But then she got to a point where she was so against it because of what Hector eventually did right. to her. Um, I loved the moment where she started singing. And then the more times she did it, she, the more times it showed the audience that she actually does love music. And it's not something that she gave up willingly. It's something that she felt like she had to do. Right. With the comedic highlights of, oh, are you warming up to me? Thinking about it. <laughs> but, but still, like, you're still in the doghouse for what you did. <laughs> you know, but and when they get together, at the end, the emotional beat works. It's like, and and they can produce this music where they are with their heart, with their hearts, with their soul. Uh, Alana uh, Ubach, uh, she was just wonderful as this, and the way in which she was depicted, and the way in which all of these characters were depicted too. Uh, she was just beautiful, beautifully done, beautifully done. And and you're right, Marissa and Phil. Her one, her singing voice really was amazing. All right, guys, we have to obviously talk about the production side of this because it's all-encompassing. To me, it's the editing and the, 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 the graphics and so forth. Um, it all comes together because it doesn't tell the story otherwise. And, and one of the most fascinating things, I don't know if you guys got this at your theater, but it opened up with um, both directors and, and the producer, and they were talking about the scene that you guys I already... did. Yeah, yes. I did get that. Yeah. And it was great because I was like, oh, this could be interesting. You know, uh, over... Uh, eight million lights used in the in that shot, um, and then obviously it gets repurposed for the other scenes. Eight million is a number that uh, I sure don't want to count to. <laughs> a lot of lights, <laughs> yeah. Unless it's money. Okay. But it's, you know, I mean, that that's the culmination of their work. Is is, is I mean, the, no no matter how you slice and dice it, that's a lot of lights, and that's not the full thing. I mean, you have to put buildings in front of it and so forth. But you know, go ahead. For movies like this, right, and even for you know, even if you have a movie like uh, like a Blade Runner or or um, like a Baby Driver, I think it would be so cool to start off with. I, I forget how many minutes it was, but it didn't take up an awful amount of time, and it made me. I was like, oh wow, okay. And then when that scene came in the movie, I had a great recall, going, oh wow, okay, <laughs> like. It was that was a very nice touch um, to do. It didn't take up an awful lot of time as the film buff. I sort of loved it. I sort of liked it. This is a cool way to start off a movie. A nice little intro by the creators, and that was cool. Absolutely. Um, So so let's let's talk about some. Why don't we start with? Let's start with the Land of the Dead overall, and then sure. we'll sort of we'll start with the macro and build to there. Uh, Marissa, I know 
For those of you who follow anatomy of movie, know that Marissa is an animation buff. <laughs> I wouldn't say that, but I do appreciate animation that I think it should be more told by because people see it, but they don't really appreciate the hard work that went behind it. And they definitely showed this on screen for the Land of the Dead. They during their research trips, they did they studied the architectural um, of all the cities, and they kind of just put it together on screen for this the, um, the vertical, the Victorian architectural, and the foundations of everything and how they they layered it upon layered and they wanted to create a city that looked like it was ever expanding because there are going to be new residents coming in every single day and while you watch it on screen it literally has no end um, and even the, the light of the Marigold Bridge going into the land of the dead, that all those petals were actually the light sources. Daniel Feinberg, who was the, the, the director of photography and lighting for this, he, they had a new program, a new particle light program that could carry many, many points on different items and, and objects that their special effects team gave them a way that they can automatically know which petals a person is stepping on as they cross the bridge and control the glow of the petals that emitted creating little light spots as someone walks through yeah. so talking about the seven million lights whenever there is contact with something that's that is what created more light and that lighting and effect that gave it life and um the, their software allowed the filmmakers to even group the lights which previously had to be placed and adjusted individually by a technician but now that they're grouped you can just place them throughout and now they're all together um and in in a group so they they figured out a, a way to introduce a single light but give it millions of points so right. that's the whole lighting behind this movie yeah and then um production designer harley jessup who uh i have to throw this out there you won an oscar for this uh 1988 movie one of my favorite movies from 1988 called inner space um directed by joe dante uh meg ryan uh dennis quaid and martin short great movie he was the production designer then won an academy award um he worked on this movie and basically, regarding the, the, the land of the dead and how he layered it, its huge vertical towers uh, actually reflect carefully researched and layered history of Mexico. Um, at the bottom of each tower, Jessup explains, are the Aztec Mayan pyramids. Above that, Spanish colonial period buildings. Uh, above that, Mexican Revolution era, Victorian era buildings, and then into the 20th century. So, you know, that created a logic to the land of the dead. And they're always building on earlier era as more people die and enter that world. So that, to me, I found it to be fantastic and fantastical to look at. Um, basically, too, uh, the effects, they made multiple trips to Mexico, uh, brought back thousands of photos, ranging from cobblestones in the streets and the city skylines, and amazing crafts, embroidery, ceramics, and things like that. Uh, and one particular inspiration stuck during a visit to um, Guanajuato, a city central Mexico, the city of terraced architecture that is going up steep hillsides and very brightly colored and layered. Um, the network of the tunnels at the base and the layers of architecture that go up to the hillsides, which we see in this land, 
what's what's amazing is is that you actually can see it in the land because it's so perfectly detailled um, by the coloration. Um, another huge influence came from 1900s engravings of Mexican artist Jose Guadalupe Posada, including his famous La Catrina. Now, there was actually something at LACMA about a year ago with this with this artist there um, that I got to see. So that really inspired us to embrace that Victorian architecture. And it's right there. And it's all on screen for you to behold. And not a detail is hidden. Whether it's when they're stepping onto pedals. I love the trolley cars that were flying back and forth. Yeah, it's, you know, their their detail was... All those trips, I don't think they were just vacationing trips. I think it no. all ends up on screen. Absolutely. <laughs> so, yeah, it was very beautiful. And, you know, what I, what I loved about it, too, uh, they got the season overall right. Um, you know, it's 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 the Dia de los Muertos, but it's it's fall. It's it's October going into November, um, and even the the bridge itself. It's it, obviously the color gold works on so many levels, but just for me, just the idea of fall, and it, fall in general too, symbolically. I know this isn't necessarily production wise, but but just lighting wise, it does tie in. Um, you know, it, it, it's the idea that uh, you know death is coming, but we're about to renew. You know, right. so uh, so symbolically, it obviously works. Really I just well. want to throw out to you, and I don't know if there's any information too, because the other beautiful thing was this trickling effect. See, on the bridge, yes, the waterfall. Yeah, we the had this trickling effect of the marigolds, which too, it almost looked like sand in an hourglass. It was mm-hmm. very beautiful, and just very again, when you see through Miguel's eyes what's going on, are inspiring. Just beautiful. So we have to talk music for obvious reasons. Where I want to start is with the song Remember Me. Because, you know, when we talk about uh, the, the varying nature of what we think is true, Remember Me is a motif that happens throughout. And it's a beautiful song uh, each and every time. And yet it takes on every different meaning, just like a song would for many people. You can, you know, for I listen to a song, it could have meaning for you in a certain way. It can have meaning for you, Marissa. Um, and so I thought uh, Remember Me was just a fantastic title of a song and the lyrics themselves, uh, fantastic. And each rendition better than the next. I loved Remember Me because it was, I feel like Disney has a great job of having that staple song in their movies. And mm-hmm. this was definitely their their big song of this film. Um, the great thing about Remember Me, it was actually written by the Oscar winning Kristen Anderson Lopez and Robert Lopez who are most notably known for uh, Frozen and Let It Go, so, which became a humongous, iconic song. So I think they, they definitely have the, the talent to make another great, rememberable song, such as Remember Me. What I loved about this one is that it had a different meaning every single time you heard the song. It got more real, especially with the whole idea of and the importance of remembering someone and how that plays into the living world and into the... Well, world of the dead where when no one remembers you you will be gone so the importance of you have to remember someone just so that they can keep living right and i thought it hit well at the end when we now heard it and especially coco is singing along with it that's where like i feel the whole audience welled up in tears yeah absolutely and and director uh, you know lee unger said 
Remember Me um, is a huge role in the film. And they, they had the idea for a song very, very early on in their production. But they wanted, they, and the idea was there being a song in the film that could be sung in different ways, in different styles, the same exact way, but with different feeling and meaning. And that's when they gave it to Bobby uh, Lopez and Kristen Anderson Lopez. And they, 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 they wrote it and they did it very early on. And while a lot changed in the course of the telling of the story, Remember Me was one of the things that stayed from the moment they wrote it. They never changed it. So the story may have adapted, but Remember Me was the same. And it's where we always talk about how movie and there's a suite that can play throughout a movie, right? And that sweet one played throughout is meant to elicit an emotion, an entrance of a character. Um, something to that effect. John Williams is a lot. Well, Michael Giancino did the score here. I didn't even know he did the score to this movie. But for me, what was what was fascinating is that I didn't know, and it didn't sound like a typical Giancino score, because he flavored it, I'm going to say, with a lot of the Latin... Latin American or Mexican tones and signatures of that music, it was a fun soundtrack to listen to while watching this movie. So we always talk about sort of promotion and uh, sort of reception, but as far as, you know, we talked about the, the extended lifeblood of this movie in terms of development and so forth, and from a, you know, promotion-wise, from a very early on perspective, there was a lot of backlash over certain decisions, um, and it changed the the, the switch from uh, having it be more U.S. based and so forth to just being, you know, Latin based, a hundred percent. And uh, certainly that was the start of of things. Right. Yes. So in the early stages of production of this film, the Disney had a misstep when their legal attorneys tried to trademark Dios de los Muertos. And that caused an immediate backlash by the Latin community online, verbally, and it made the creators realize, oh, we have to really do something with this culture and make sure it's true and authentic to to give us a good reason to create this film that can please people and, and the story that we're telling. As far as, you know, truthfully for me, I actually didn't see this that publicized going into it. I actually didn't even see the trailer, I don't think, before I saw this movie, which is surprising because it's, it's a Disney movie at the end of the day. Uh, Marissa, I know you attend D23 and so forth. Dimitri, you have a pass to Disney, so you guys are more in that world. I saw the trailer quite a bit. I mean, it got trailered on the right features. Um, from the moment I saw the Disney, or I should say the teaser, right? Yeah, I was in. Even from the first teaser, I just was like, oh my God, I'm going to tear up. I'm going to get emotional watching this movie, but but in a really, really good way. And each teaser that they released, or each trailer that they released, was I just, it just, I was in. Mm-hmm. I was in. So Certainly a lot of people were as well. It uh, it took the, the number one spot in the box office over Justice League. Overall, in that weekend, you know, Thanksgiving Day weekend, um, pulled in a total of, uh, worldwide, $153 million. That weekend, I mean, currently we're looking at, as of November 27th being currently, 
75 million domestic, 75.2. Uh, not too shabby. Um, you know, what should be noted uh, is that it's foreign release thus far, 82 million. So foreign, it's done 52. The, the, the foreign release has, has amounted to 52 0.3% of the worldwide gross. It should also be noted that this is the highest grossing movie in Mexico, period. They released it in Spanish language, I believe, as well, as far as the voices. and Highest grossing movie, animated film, from Pixar. Talk about it again. No whitewashing here. Highest grossing movie. We've got a worldwide $157 million, and it's going to play on through. When you get an A-plus cinema score, and what, like 96%, I think, of Rotten Tomatoes? You're just going to play right on through right up until Christmas. And and the accolades and the word of mouth um, will continue. I've had people, when I say how amazing it is, they go, really? It was that good? I go, you get okay, I'm going to go see it. It's so worth it. And, you know, we talked about this. Um, I don't want to get too far into it, but where uh, Justice League, what was it, 96 million, and they called that a bomb. Granted, for that movie, it was. I wish this movie had an opening weekend of 92 million because it, it, it really deserved it. I really want this movie to do. I, I know it is going to do well, but no matter how well it does, I'm still going to be upset that it did do better. That's a simply, yeah. and, and that's a testament to how great I think the actual yeah. movie is. Can I say what I think the only messed up? Sure. To, to this, to the entire movie-going experience of this was having to sit through uh, a Christmas television special, unedited for commercial that was frozen, like mm. the Olaf's Adventure. I I didn't expect it to be that long, and I really wanted to get. When's Coco? <laughs> I actually heard people in the theater go, "Did we walk in the wrong theater?" Mm. <laughs> like, yeah, I could see that. They should have advertised that a hell of a lot more. That this is going to be almost a half an hour long. It well, critics couldn't. It, crit, critics felt bad. They, they, a lot of critics came out and said, you know, we couldn't tell you guys. We wish we could have, right. <laughs> or wish we'd known. I guess. All right. Well, that about does it for our analysis of Coco. Thank you guys as always for watching us. Um, as I said, feel free to comment. Let us know what you thought of the movie. Let us know what you thought of the new format. Hopefully, you guys enjoyed it, and we'll continue to strive to do better for you guys with uh, with each remembrance. <laughs> uh, <laughs> In the meantime, where can uh, people interact with you guys more directly? Marissa? You can follow me everywhere at TV. And Dimitri? And support me on Twitter at DMovies1701. And we'll keep you updated on the various movies that we've got coming up for the rest of the year and certainly for 2018. But fear not, we have a whole library for you guys to check out of past anatomies, um, whether it is Inside Out, The Good Dinosaur, and plenty of other Pixar movies. So fear not, check out the archives. Um, We'll see you guys next time on another Anatomy of a Movie. Bye, all. From producers Maria Menounos, Kevin Undergaro, Phil Svitek, and the entire Popcorn Talk Network, we would like to thank you for tuning in. For questions or comments, be sure to visit popcorntalk.com. I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this has been a presentation of the Popcorn Talk Network.